We can start now. My girlfriend is here. I waited for her for 56 years, and she's worth waiting for. So this morning, before we get going into the book of Amos, let's uh, get a little help. Father, this morning, once again, we are so grateful that you, you wrote some things down in black and white, so that when your word was pretty much oral and it was passed on from person to person, and now as we go today, that we don't do so much of that. We, we have it in black and white, and we can go back, and as you said in Romans, uh, everything that you wrote down was for our instruction and our encouragement. And today as we look at what uh, you asked Amos to go tell your kids, I pray that we catch on to what he said through you and that it would make a difference in our life. We pray this in your name. Amen. Growing up on a farm in Minnesota had uh, with a dad like mine, had some real advantages. Like we could pile on his lap uh, and he would read Old Testament to us. And sometimes he'd go down to the, our little country church library. It was a vast library. must have had 20, 25 books in it. Uh, most of them were the Psalter hymnals. But uh, he got a book one time and he came to, for Saturday night we would sit and read and and the title of the book was uh, Amos, the farmer from Tekoa. I don't know why I remember that, but it stuck in my head real well. Amos, the farmer from Tekoa. And I thought, you know, I listened real close sitting on his lap there because uh, he was a farmer. He must have been important like my dad. Uh, and he was. And today we get to see a little bit more of who was this man, Amos, and why did, he, did God name a, a book of the Bible after him? Chapter 1 starts out, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Uh, no, Amos was not a, uh, voted on as the most likely to succeed or, or who's who in Israel. In fact, chapter 7 uh, says, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son. But I was a shepherd, and I also took care of some sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. In addition to being a shepherd, he was also involved in growing sycamore fruit, which involved cutting the, the fruit a little bit and slitting it and letting the juice run out so it would uh, sweeten. He traveled down the Jordan Valley and then to the warmer lowlands near the Dead Sea to work on his fruit trees. Uh, on that map, you can see the high tech that I am. Um, when you hand draw it with a uh, uh, dry mark and then you type in the letters, then you don't get picked up for plagiarism. So uh, uh, that asterisk there is where Tekoa is, just south of Jerusalem. Um, it was up high in the Judea Mountains. Just a little aside on, uh, you'll hear about it later, uh, as we get into Nehemiah, not today, but sometime, uh, about 300 years later, 
the, we find that the people of Tekoa, uh, we find out a little bit what were the people like when Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. Nehemiah 3 says, The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but the nobles would not put their shoulders to the work. They're the only ones that are mentioned when, uh, after the return that uh, Nehemiah, when he was building, they're the only ones that would not put their shoulders to the work. So I don't know what that says about the town of Tekoa, but uh, it does say something about their nobles. Amos lived in a time of material prosperity of both Judah and Israel. The long range of Uzziah in Judah, that was 50 years, uh, and Jeroboam II, uh, 40 years, that brought financial and social prosperity to both nations. Israel's control over the trade routes allowed them to accumulate wealth and live in opulence and a very much of an arrogant lifestyle. As my dad used to say, uh, the rich got richer and the poor got kids. As we'll read, these poor people became targets for legal and economic exploitation. Religion was actually doing quite well there, too. Uh, I didn't say Christianity. I said religion. Um, The people just thronged to the shrines for their yearly festivals, enthusiastically offering their sacrifices. God was important to them. Unfortunately, so were many other gods. But this is nothing new, because you remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai to uh, bring the Ten Commandments. What did he find? They were having a religious festival. They made golden calves, which they ended up eventually drinking as powdered gold from supposedly gods ground up. And 40 years later, when they entered the Promised Land, they were worshiping Yahweh along with several other brand ex-gods taken from the Canaanite tribes, which they had failed to completely destroy. Uh, Suffice it to say, uh, God had some things to say through the prophets. Historically, after the 120 years of the United Kingdom, which you're familiar with, with Saul and and David and then Solomon, uh, uh, the kings of uh, Judah, uh, there was 350 years uh, with two separate nations after they had divided Very few of those kings walked in the ways of the Lord, which was the same lack of spiritual integrity demonstrated by their neighboring nations. So as you see those countries, nations up there, Judah and Israel and Moab and all the other ones, there really wasn't much different between them, and there should have been. The author of this uh, book seems to be Amos, as he starts out in chapter 1, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The dates of his prophesying were about 760 to 750 B.C. And then he continues in verse 1, What we saw two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II was king of Israel. Excavations have shown that uh, there was a serious earthquake in that region during that time. And over 200 years later, in Zechariah 14, he warns the Jews after returning from captivity, you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah. 
God sent uh, Amos, the prophet from the southern king kingdom of Judah, or from Israel, uh, up to uh, the northern king, or from the southern tribe of uh, Judah up to the northern tribe of Israel. It's always kind of interesting when you cross lines like that. I think of it's kind of like if you take the hockey coach from International Falls, Minnesota Junior College, and you send them across the Canadian border um, and to teach the Toronto Maple Leafs how to play hockey. That doesn't always go down real well. Uh, and it didn't there either. We got this foreigner coming in to give us instructions. There were not very many people with encouraging lifestyles during that time, and the things that Amos had to say certainly reflect that. If you take the whole book of Amos as a whole, and you compare hope on the one hand and judgment on the other, much of the book of Amos is not very nice to hear. The main emphasis is found in verse chapter 4. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Um, that makes me a bit nervous. That's even a much stronger version than wait till your father comes home. Um, it's only in the last five verses in Amos that we finally hear some words of consolation that God gives him to bring. Now, the book of Amos consists of eight judgments, chapters 1 and 2, and then three sermons, chapters 3 and 6, then five visions of judgment, chapters 7 through 9, and finally, the three promises of restoration of Israel. Even though this was sent, uh, Amos was sent by God to prophesy primarily against Israel, we find seven other countries that he addressed all around them, one at a time. You'll see Damascus, Philistria, Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Judah, his hometown, and then, or nation, and then Israel. You might ask, why was Amos concerned with these other nations? In those Near Eastern societies, it was common to have what they called suzerain vassal treaties. A vassal person or nation was one who received protection and land from a superior person or a nation in exchange for loyalty and service. The ultimate example, obviously, is God as a supreme suzerain, and you and I as the vassals. God's totally the giver and the provider, and we're the recipients who are called on to be faithful and obedient. Obviously, Judah and Israel were in a covenantal relationship with God on the basis of the Mosaic Covenant, but had certainly failed to observe God's laws and were found guilty. On a nation-to-nation -nation basis, these six surrounding nations were not in a covenantal relationship with God in the same way, but still guilty. Notice the difference. God's universal covenant with humanity made at the time of Noah in Genesis 9, made these nations vassals to him. God's suzerain promise never again to destroy the earth with a flood required that they were to refrain from shedding blood. This was in direct violation and assault on God's own image in mankind. Human life was important to God, and obedience was part of his everlasting covenant. 
That's the covenant that Amos charged these Gentile nations with rebelling against. Thus is prophesying against them also. As Romans confirms, though the Gentiles may have not received the spoken or written law, the requirements of human decency are certainly known to them. We're familiar with Romans 1. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God made it plain to them, so that men are without excuse. I suppose it would have been preferred by these nations if Amos had simply sent out a memo indicating that there appeared to possibly have been some minor errors that came to his attention, and if they would please refrain from doing that any longer and notify him in six months when they got it all corrected. Uh, No, that's not how it went. He starts out in chapter 1. The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. That was all language that he understood. There was violence in this judgment for their sins. Zion was Jerusalem where the Lord resided and from where Israel had revolted years ago. As a shepherd, Amos was aware of the presence of lions, as was David the shepherd boy. That roar was not like Genesis 3, the sly serpent, slithering quiet. But that was like the first Peter 5, enemy that prowls around looking for someone to devour. That terrifying roar paralyzes its victim with fear. Then comes the pounce. Then comes the tearing. And eventually the bleeding to death. Everywhere that roar from Zion was heard, the pastures would dry up. The land would become barren. Sheep would die. Shepherds would be unemployed. And the list goes on. Yes, Hebrews 10, 31 is in true It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amos makes it very clear that these are not simply a few suggestions from a former sheep herder who cross-trained into an itinerant public speaker. As he addressed each of the nations, he starts out with, this is what the Lord says. There's no wondering or questioning as to whom this is coming from. Then he continues for... Three sins of, and he names the nation, even for four, I will not turn my back. There seems to be two trains of thought regarding that term for three sins or even for four. One being a poetic way of expressing the number seven, which symbolizes completeness in a totally negative way, incidentally, as bad as it can get. The other thought is that in Scripture, the use of a number followed by the next higher number usually puts emphasis on the latter one. Regarding the sins of the six surrounding nations, Amos only listed the final sin, the one that had finally gone beyond God's patience. Thus, we only see that final sin listed for each of the six surrounding nations. In the case of Israel, however, all seven sins were listed. As God's chosen, more was demanded from them. As the oldest son in a rather large family growing up, 
I hardly ever needed to be punished. Um, well, maybe once in a while. But when I did, I could usually understand and handle the consequences. But the most difficult times, when my dad punished me, he would look me in the eye and say, Alan, I expected more from you. I got goosebumps. That was hard to listen to because that had a higher intimate relational impact. It wasn't just that I had sinned, had done something wrong. There was an element in there that I had wounded someone I loved, my dad. That element is present in Amos. Beginning with one, chapter 1, verse 3, Amos begins God's indictments against the six surrounding nations, Damascus, Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. There's a pattern that he uses. First, he lists the name of the nation. Then he lists the sin or the crime. And then he lists the punishment. Damascus, he started with, she threshed Gilead. Threshing was a normal part of their farming operation. They did this by pulling a heavy sledge over the wheat to separate the grain from the husk on the threshing floor. This sledge was made with rough boards, which were studded with sharp prongs or knives. This was also their method of torturing their slaves. In verse 4, God says he will send fire on the house of Haziel, the king of Damascus. He'll break down their gate, destroy the king, and send the people into exile to Kerr. That's like saying Israel is going to get sent back to Egypt. Second nation, Philistia. Incidentally, one of the cities of Philistia, as many of you know, is Gaza, where Samson was imprisoned and eventually met his death. In 1 verse 6 we read, I will not turn my back because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. Poor defenseless Hebrew people were sold on the slave markets to the Edomites. Again, God would send fire, destroy the king, till the last of the Philistines was dead. Phoenicia. They not only sinned by taking whole communities of God's people and selling them to Edom, but she had broken a sacred treaty of brotherhood previously made between Tyre and Israel. In turn, once again, God punished them by sending fire and destroying their fortresses. And then Edom. Now this was a more personal, long-lasting family sin. Edom was a direct descendant from Esau, Jacob's brother. In Genesis 25 we read, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why it was, he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. And the rest, of course, is history. And God's response in verse 11, it says, because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion, I will send fire upon their two largest cities and consume them. And there's Ammon. 
something of note of this nation and its sins. The Ammonites were descendants from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his youngest daughter. Deuteronomy 19. You can't hardly read Deuteronomy 19. It's a dirty book, dirty chapter. Uh, just terrible. Don't try it in the Living Bible. Um, it says, the Lord says, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders, I will set fire to the city walls and consume them. This horrible sin against defenseless women and unborn children was designed to terrorize their enemies. How is it that in another country that we know quite well, the same sin is rampant, though it's done in a much more sterile medical facility, couched under a more sophisticated name called rights? Then there's Moab. Like Ammon, the Moabites have a history in that they too were descendants of Lot. Only they are the results of his incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. What's going on? Remember the statement I've heard years ago. Decisions have descendants. What I decide today will show up later. Decisions have descendants. Lot made a couple bad decisions. Now that the Lord, through lame Amos, has addressed each of the six individual surrounding nations by name and by specific sins and reveals his punishment, we find Amos addressing his home country, Judah. They were afraid he was going to get to that. But this was a bit different. As we mentioned earlier, these six Gentile nations were guilty of breaking the everlasting covenant of God, which he made with mankind in general, and was revealed in his general revelation, which was obvious to all. As confirmed in Romans 1, not so with Judah and Israel. Their sins were against the Mosaic covenant, and that they had rejected the law and the decrees of the Lord. They had been led away by false gods, so God sent fire on them and destroyed the fortresses of Jerusalem. This punishment of Judah was the eventual destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar deported them to Babylon into captivity for 70 years. Psalm 137 records the pulse beat of that particular day by the rivers of Babylon. We sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for they, our captors demanded songs of joy. And they said, sing the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? And then finally comes the nation of Israel, who Amos originally came to prophesy to as were true of Judah, Israel had also violated the Mosaic Covenant, not just the general everlasting covenant of Noah's day. In his indictments of the six surrounding nations, Amos only listed their final sin, or as stated, even for four. 
however, with the nation of Israel, he lists several of their sins. In chapter 2, verse 6, we see that they were selling the poor, their own people as slaves. Verse 7 says that they denied justice to the poor by perverting the legal system. It gets worse as we find that fathers and sons were sexually abusing servant girls, profaning God's holy name. Verse 8 says that they were taking illegal collateral as down payment from the poor. And the worst sin was that they were worshiping other gods by drinking stolen wine and honoring heathen gods. And the holy God is faithful to himself, which means he punishes sin. Every sin, every time, every person. That's who he is. But fortunately for us, that's only part of who he is. That's shown by his continual offering for us sinners the opportunity to repent. That's an open offer until the time we die or he returns, of which we know the date and time of neither. So today would be a good time to get that done. This is not part of the lesson, but it's kind of an extra as I look at this and read this. It's easy for me to read and hear about these old guys' really, really bad sins of the Old Testament and come to the erroneous conclusion that we're beyond that. We can stop right there. God does offer forgiveness, but only after sincere and thoughtful repentance. In chapters 3 through 6, Amos spends time explaining why God was pronouncing judgment as if he owes us an explanation. Simply another form of his grace. Back in Deuteronomy 7, just after God had explained why he was bringing the Israelites specifically into the promised land, he tells them, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his favorite possession. We're a bunch of teacher's pets. Pure and simple. Then the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing so that all of the peoples of the earth. This was the greatest offer a suzerain ever offered a vassal. But again, I hear both my heavenly father and my earthly father say, Alan, I expected more from you. And Amos is reminding the nation of Israel. Chapters 3, 4, and 5, the first verse of every one, all begin with, hear this word. Chapter three ten says, they do not know how to do right. They forgot. It had been so long. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. A very short 30 years later, Assyria invaded and completely destroyed 10 tribes, never to be heard from again as a nation. This type of warning and carried out prophecy happened, obviously, numerous times in the lives of the kings and the prophets. Chapter 4 Verse 1, 
It starts out like the late Pastor Adrian Rogers always said, tell it big, tall, and straight. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, you women who oppress the poor, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Hmm. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. This was obviously pointed sarcasm. Bethel was where God had renewed his covenant with Abraham and was a religious center for the northern tribes. Gilgal was Israel's very first campground when they crossed the, Red, the Jordan into the Promised Land and where they had their very first Passover and where Saul was crowned their king. That had a history. After numerous warnings in, chapter, in verse 7 to 11, God lays it out. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, O Israel, and because I will do this to you, Prepare to meet your God. That should send shivers to all of us, at least if we believe it. Chapter 5, Amos begins by singing a lament, a crying. Uh, Several weeks ago, uh, we heard from Michael as he shared with us uh, through the book of Psalms uh, how many of them are actual times of tears, laments. This lament was for their own certain upcoming punishment and death, as if it had already happened. It's kind of like reading your own obituary in the newspaper. As a nation, their judgment was certain, but individuals could still seek God and live. They were warned, however, not to depend on the pseudo-religious cities of Bethel and Gilgal, or or the evil judicial system. Instead of trusting on a system, God was inviting them to seek me and live individually. In verse 16 and 17, they're warned about the time of punishment to be a time when they couldn't even find enough mourners for their funerals. If any of them had paid attention to the book of Numbers based on their two senses and the promises of death during those 40 years of traveling in the wilderness, they'd remembered that they had averaged 80 funerals a day for that 40-year pilgrimage. They did 80 funerals a day. I would think that would slow down progress. But that's what they did. Can there be anyone even left to cry? Verse 17 says, there will be wailing in the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst. God had already passed, originally passed over them on their way out of Egypt and had helped them pass through the river Jordan and is now passing through on a warning of punishment of death. The history should give very special meaning to the concept of that later Passover. In verse 18, he says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Uh, last week, Carrie was talking in Joel about that concept, the day of the Lord, which I think most of the time is a negative statement. Once in a while, it's referred to as a positive statement. Maybe when they just wanted to feel that way. And I think that was what was going on here. They they were excited about their own pie-in-the-sky rewards. But this day of the Lord was referring to a time when he will send you into exile beyond Damascus when Assyria would take them captive. 
beyond Damascus is not just to Assyria, but away from the promised land. There was a time in my life when I thought of hell as uh, crying and gnashing of teeth and some of that stuff. That's changed. First Thessalonians 1, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Shut out from the presence of the Lord. Now that's hell. And in chapter 6, he begins with another woe. There's a lot of woe, woe, woes in here. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure. You put off the evil day. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory. You dine on choice lambs and strum away your harps. You drink wine by the bowlful, but you don't grieve. Sounds like 1969 Woodstock. Therefore, you'll be the first to go into exile. Verse 8 says, The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares. That's not just Amos speaking for the Lord. That's God himself. Not till chapter 9 do we see that Amos will tell them of time after repentance, which when his remnant will enjoy the day of the Lord. Now, in chapter 7 to 9, God gave Amos five different visions as a method of actually describing the results of his coming judgment. He wanted to see that them very clearly. Uh, the visions were of locust, a fire, a plumb line, a basket of fruit, and a sword. Incidentally, these are all things that the people were familiar with. Probably not surprising as we find Jesus in his parables and his miracles doing much of the same thing many times. He used fish when he was talking to fishermen. He used sheep when he was talking to sheep herders and demons sent into pigs with pig farmers. Money dollars, real dollars, when talking to the rich young ruler and seized with farmers and a coin with Caesar's stamp when he was talking to the city fat cats. In chapter 7, we see... This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, just as the second crop was coming. Ah, locusts. Hmm. I wonder if the Israelites had passed down the reminder of the eighth plague in Egypt, in addition to many other personal harvest seasons they had been through. Devastation. No food. Famine. And the timing of it, after one crop and the next one had just started, there was no chance for another. Amos pleaded with the Lord, Sovereign Lord, forgive. It's not a bad place to start. So the Lord relented. That's pure grace. Verse 4, the sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. Again realizing the horrific effects of the land being completely destroyed, Amos cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg of you to stop. So the Lord relented. In verses 7 to 9, we see the Lord standing by a wall with a plumb line in his hand. For those of you that don't know what a plumb line is, it's just a string with a pointed heavy weight 
on the bottom, which always shows true vertical. New buildings are built with those, and uh, old ones that are leaning a bit are used to correct them. God was setting the plumb line, which was probably the covenantal law, and demonstrating how far out of line his Israelite nation had fallen. In the first two visions of judgment, Amos prayed, and God relented. In this one, God quickly precluded any appeal from Amos. The matter was settled in God's mind. He would spare them no longer. Enough is enough. As you and I have experienced many times when God seems to be doing a great work in our lives, that's especially when Satan comes along and taps us on the shoulder and attacks us too. So too at this time for Amos, Amaziah the priest of Bethel went to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, tattling. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. These words, which happen to be the truth, were criticized by Amaziah. Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. They'd had enough of that. God's final response through Amos was in verse 17. This is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute. Your sons will be killed. Your land will be divided. And Israel will be certainly going to exile away from their native land. And a mere 30 years later, Assyria completely destroyed the 10 northern tribes, never to be heard again as a nation. God was and still is dead serious. The fourth vision of judgment is that God gives Amos, who he identifies the basket of fruit. The Lord said, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. And that day the songs of the temple I will turn to wailing. I will never forget anything they have done in Israel. The days are coming when I will send a famine throughout the land. Not a famine of food or thirst, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Stop for a minute and imagine. It's Sunday morning here at Redemption Hill. There's a famine of the hearing of the word. No call to worship. No praise, no singing of psalms, certainly no preaching of the word, silence from God. That was the vision that God gave Amos to give to the Israelites. Psalm 95 says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, where their fathers tested and tried me. In the fifth and final vision, Amos saw the sovereign Lord standing by the altar with a sword. This was not the Isaiah 6 version, vision where Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. Now this was the Lord with a sword in his hand coming for judgment, saying, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. I will kill them. It didn't matter whether they were Israelites or Cushites. Leviticus reminds us that a holy God cannot and will not exist with an unholy people. Be separate and holy. 
based on what we've heard God say through Amos to this point, it's obvious that it's not only dismal, but complete devastation. But based on who God is, in addition to being a holy God, a truly repentant heart has been God's desire from the very beginning. After 126 verses of warning, ignoring, and justifying annihilation, God takes five more verses to bring in his concept of his remnant. Later on, we get into the book of uh, Ezra, saying on behalf of the people, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. It's been a long time since I've accused God of punishing me less than I deserve. God's promise through Amos in chapter 9 says, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken from a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. God's covenant with David said that one of David's descendants would always sit on the throne. 2 Samuel 7, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom, your house, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Enter Jesus the Messiah. Chapter 1, we began seeing that Amos was originally sent by God to prophesy against the nation of Israel. But already in verse 3, we find that this is what the Lord says. And then he begins to make judgment on six surrounding Gentile nations, beginning with Damascus and ending with Moab, before he gets to Judah and eventually Israel. There's a consistent pattern with each of his indictments. He lists the name of the nation. He lists the crime. He lists the consequences. And ultimately his remnant and mercy of restoration. I won't review all those, uh, but simply remind us that that was a distinct pattern. That brought my attention to Jesus' revelation in John to the seven churches in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Here, too, there seems to be a consistent pattern. He lists the name of the city, he lists a positive note. He mentions an accusation. He mentions a judgment, a call to repentance, and finally a positive sign of mercy. As Amos prophesied to and warned the surrounding nations, so too the Apostle John gave warnings to the surrounding seven churches in Asia. He said to the church in Ephesus, they had lost their first love. The church in Smyrna needed to stop being afraid of what they were about to suffer. The church in Pergamum has warned not to keep holding on to the teachings of Balaam. The church in Thyatira was warned not to tolerate or compromise the evil woman Jezebel. Then the church in Sardis was told to wake up, as they had a reputation for being alive, but were actually dead. The church in Philadelphia was small and therefore had little strength, but was neither rebuked nor warned of any evil. And finally, the church of Laodicea's deeds were neither hot nor cold, but they didn't recognize it. Repeatedly, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What would Jesus use Amos or the Apostle John to say to the nation of America or to the church at Redemption Hill? You're dismissed, and we'll be back to worship because we don't have a famine of the word.